We are working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we got started over the last two weeks, and so this morning we're going to pick up in verse 4, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and we will look at verses 4 through 9. And if you're one of our worshipers in training, your keywords this morning are grace, knowledge, and sustain. And the title of my sermon this morning is Sustained, the Faithfulness of God. So let's uh, begin by reading together in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, you probably know that it was a complete and total mess. And so I want us to consider for ourselves, why would we expect that the church back then would be any different than the church today? Just think about the people. Think about people who make up the church. Sinful, rebellious individuals who by nature at one point in life hated God and despised instruction and godly wisdom. People who were not were not for the grace of God, would still be God-haters, who would be wisdom despisers. And this is what makes up the church. A bunch of ex-convicts who are on death row. And just before you think that the problem is two rows ahead of you or two rows behind you, be sure to take a look at yourself. Because I know that I am so keenly aware of my own sin that it is not long that in the midst of every conflict, every mess in this life, that I can look at my own heart and admit that I am the biggest problem. And even the greatest congregations across the world are filled with flawed people. And those people know that within the body there are problems. And it's not all that they want it to be. And it's not all that that God has intended it to be. But unless we're willing to admit that fact that the church is made up of people who have sin and who act on that sin, naivete sets in. And the people are set out on a quest for the perfect church. But what people often don't realize is that the church is no bigger or smaller out there than it is in here. 
In other words, God's people are God's people, no matter where you are. Sure, someone might take dissatisfaction and sit somewhere else in another building around other people, but that doesn't change the fact that the church is the church. And the people that make up the church are flawed people. And there is no perfect situation that is not flawed in a different way. Yes, God's people are being perfected. We are being made more holy. We are being sanctified. But we still sin. And we still have desires of the flesh that we must work to make war against. And we often sin against God and one another. So how do we keep ourselves from being nomads? How do we keep ourselves from being individuals who wander from place to place only to become more and more dissatisfied because we never find what we want when we have this picture before us of what we see to be perfect? And I think this is the antidote in 1 Corinthians verses 4 through 9. Verses 10 and following is Paul addressing various differences amongst the people. And his appeal for them to work those differences out and to be faithful to God and to cleanse the church and to drive out sin and discipline those in sin and bring order in their worship and reconcile relationships and love one another. That's the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. But in these opening verses... Paul affirms those who are the true church. And I say the true church because as we learned in 1 John, the church will always have those amongst it who are not the true church, but rather are non-believers who either think that they are believers when they're actually not, or they know that they're not believers and they want to appear to be, or simply those that are not believers and have a desire to work to destroy God's work in the church. So Paul is affirming those within the church of Corinth who are the true believers in Christ. Those who have, by faith, repented of their sins, turned from their sin, called upon the name of the Lord, as we saw in verse 3, and believed the gospel. He's writing to those who have been given new hearts and new affections for Christ and new desires to live, not for themselves, not for their own glory, but to treasure Christ and to love Christ with all of their hearts and all of their minds and souls and strength and to love their neighbors as themselves. So Paul in this section takes time to acknowledge the sustaining faithfulness of God. He acknowledges that in God's faithfulness, that He will fulfill His promises. In many ways, I see that Paul, through this, is is trying to strike a balance before he gets to the correction. Before he begins laying out his corrections for the various sins that were going on within the church at Corinth, he wants to ensure that the people who are true believers 
He wants to ensure for them that they are believers. And I think that we all need to be reminded that God frees us from things and and ways of thinking about the church and what it is and how to live as the church that are not true and are not realistic and are not biblical. He frees us from a, a pessimism that looks at the church and all of her faults and foibles and just causes us to want to give up and throw in the towel. He frees us from becoming a people who simply want to run to the hills, to run and live in a secluded cabin with our Bibles, never to see another soul again, because we just can't handle being around one another anymore. And He frees us from any kind of silly optimism that assumes that if we just do certain things in a certain way, then even the most vocal and hateful atheist won't be able to resist coming to be a part of what's going on. This optimism that assumes very subtly that it's not necessarily the gospel that transforms, but rather systematized efforts to make things seem more satisfying and appealing and palatable. And He frees us from a a flat monotony that causes us to simply sit back and go through the motions. And from a feverish activity where we drive ourselves into the ground because we feel like we need to be pushing and going and doing 24 hours a day. And it seems that whenever the people of God, lose a sense of God's purpose and God's calling and His mission for His church, that we see one of two things happening. One is either that there is a a dull, humdrum, going through the motions type of attitude. Or the other is that there's a movement to get people to give themselves to feverish activity. If only we do more of this or do that, then then this will be what we want it to be and everything will be fine. But neither of these is the way that anything in the church will happen. This is not the way that the Bible prescribes for the health and vitality of the church. God does not want us to go on living in monotony and humdrum boredom, going through the motions, He also doesn't want us to be scurrying around 24 hours a day doing this and that in a frenzy. He wants us to grow into maturity. And this is the very reason why Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He longs for them to have this maturity. He longs for them to be faithful to the Scriptures. Not flat and dull, not frenzied, but mature and faithful and obedient. So when Paul thought about the church at Corinth, he didn't derive a great deal of encouragement by who they were or even what they were. You see, later on in verse 26, he told them to consider themselves when they were called. They were foolish and lowly and weak and they were a despised group of people. 
And this is how God has designed the world to function, that He might be all the more glorified. Not through people who are flawless, not through people who are powerful, but through ordinary people who are flawed, through ordinary people who are fearful and moving forward in the power that God supplies, seeking to fulfill His ultimate purpose. So Paul's ultimate confidence in the church at Corinth has nothing to do with the people in the church. It has everything to do with God's grace upon them. It has everything to do with God's faithfulness and generosity toward them. And what Paul says of the church at Corinth is the very same thing that can be said of every church today. I have two specific points I want to hit on this morning. The first one is this. The church is fully endowed with the gifts of God's grace. Let's look again at verses 4 through 7. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that makes us ultimately thankful for one another? Because... As we look around at one another, surely we can see things about each other that we do not particularly care for and that we do not maybe particularly enjoy. In fact, there may be those that we know that we wish that would simply go away so that we wouldn't have to see them anymore. So how do we go from that and instead be thankful for them? Most simply, it is God's grace that is at work within. Therefore, that is my brother. That is my sister. This is what knits us together. Not certain ideas or goals or objective, but that God's grace is evident in and amongst His people. He's talking about community. He's talking about commonality. Paul is giving thanks to God because the true church at Corinth is living in community with one another, knit to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ by the grace of God. And I want you to notice in verse 4 how Paul says this grace was acquired. The grace of God that was what? Given you in Christ Jesus. Does Paul say that you earned God's grace? Does he say that you were worthy of God's grace? Does he say that we purchase God's grace? No, he's very clear that the grace of God is given to his people in Jesus Christ. And some of you may think, yeah, we know we know that we understand that no problem. But I want to challenge our thinking alongside our practice for a minute. Intellectually, a lot of us understand that grace is a free gift from God. 
an undeserved gift that is given to us in light of the fact that we were once enemies of God and that we did not, nor could we earn or secure it ourselves. We understand that. We read the Scriptures. We see that. We know that. But do we believe it so much that our lives are are a reflection of that? Do we believe it so much that our day-to-day lives are an indication that we are the recipients of that from God which we most certainly do not deserve? And that at one point we did not even want? Because I can assure you that the Apostle Paul is not just thankful for the grace of God that he sees and knows within the Corinthians. He is abundantly thankful for the grace of God that he knows is within himself. That that has been given to him by God in Jesus Christ. So I want to make sure that we understand what grace is. The common definition that people will give of grace is that it is unmerited favor, which is most certainly true. It is favor granted to us that we do not deserve. But the grace of God in salvation is more than giving us what we do not deserve. It is God's doing so in light of the fact that we were enemies of God. We hated God. So let me, on a small scale, let me try and illustrate this for you a little Example, and it's not perfect, but maybe it will help. Unmerited favor is me giving you $20 that you didn't earn, that you didn't work for, that it, it, was, it was mine, but I gave it to you for reasons of my own, but that were, there was nothing in you or from you that required me to give you $20. That's unmerited favor. But grace goes beyond that. Grace is you come into my home and you open hand slap me across the face and you steal $10 from me and later I track you down and say, I know you just open hand slapped me across the face and stole $10 from me, but here's $20 and I love you and I forgive you for those things. That's grace. Unmerited favor in light of the fact that we were God's enemies and that we sought to rebel against Him. That's grace. And you see, this grace is the release from the bondage of humdrum, flatline monotony or beehive hyperactivity that I spoke of earlier. If we have a true and complete understanding of God's grace and what it does and how it is acquired, we will be incredibly thankful and we will be overflowing with the desire to proclaim the gospel and to see sinners rescued from the wrath of God that is coming. We will be pleading with God to set His grace upon our neighbors and we will be striving to be a means that our neighbor's eyes will be open to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And when we understand grace, we are snatched away from legalism. 
We are snatched away from frenzies. And we are set to glorify God and to proclaim the gospel, fully knowing that it is God who saves. It is a freeing realization to know that we need not burden ourselves with legalistic backpacks of weight as we venture out as pilgrims in this land. And you see also that grace reminds us that it is contradictory to consistently say of a person, well, they're, they're a Christian, but they sure don't act like it. Brothers and sisters, if God has set His grace upon a person, if we are filled with God's grace and have been rescued by God's grace and walk in newness of life, because of God's grace, there will be no question of our transformation. There will be no question of our walk with God. Will we sin? Yes. Will we do things and say things that others will look at and say, you're not acting like a Christian? Yes. There will be those times. But the dividing line is how those situations are dealt with and the constant, consistent pattern of my life. Am I humbly acknowledging my sin before God? Repenting and turning from my sin that He not be dishonored? Or am I continuing to walk in rebellion to God? unrepentant, and no different from the rest of the world. Whether or not saving grace is present is a determining factor. Quite simply, has God transformed your heart and mind or not? Are you walking in the world as a part of the world, or do you live in the world, not as the world? Paul goes on, verse 5. In every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. You've been enriched in every way, and, verse 7, you don't lack any spiritual gift. Why did, why did God put us together? Why does He put us in community with one another? Does anyone in here have every spiritual gift? No. That's why we need each other. That's why we need the church. And when we're together, we are enriched in every way. And there is nothing missing from that mosaic. We need each other. That's what we've sought to imply in our mission statement. Ephesus Church is a family of faith. We need one another. And in fact, we are commanded to take hold of our need for one another and to strive alongside one another. In light of that, Paul addresses two major issues with the Corinthian church. Speech, or logos, and knowledge, gnosis. Specifically, with speech, he's writing about tongue gifts and interpretation. And with knowledge, he's speaking of wisdom. So, logos, speech, is truth proclaimed. 
And gnosis or knowledge is truth apprehended. So he's saying that they have the truth proclaimed and truth apprehended. He's saying you've got it all there. It's all before you. You don't need a wise man or a guru. You don't need someone who claims to have a special angle on it. You've got it all right there. So don't be suckered into those so-called spiritual elite who will say, we know, you don't know, but we know. We know, so you better sit at our feet and take in everything we say without questioning or searching it out for yourselves. And in a certain sense, Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to not be sucked into the vortex of false teachers that will sound very Christian and will sound very fantastic, but in the end are only striving to use the name of Christ for their own gain. Don't go down those dead-end streets. Everything you need is before you. All your enrichment in the ways of speaking and in the ways of knowing God has given you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says the way he knows this is, verse 6, the testimony that was proclaimed among them was confirmed in them. What he means is this, I preach the gospel to you. The Spirit of God brought it to life in your hearts. You believe the gospel. You were made part of the church. The Spirit of God was given to you. All the gifts and all the enrichment that you required were manifest to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, while things are not like you'd like them to be, while things are not what you hope they will be or what you hope for them, you still have everything and will be enriched in every way. Look at verse 6. The grace of God was given you in Christ Jesus. When? When the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. Confirmed means settled. Made steadfast. Made solid. How is it that the testimony of Christ is made solid? Testimony in the Greek is marturion, from which we get the word martyr. It's translated in Acts 1.8 as witness. It's the same word as witness, and it refers to the gospel. Look at it there. Even as the gospel of Christ, the witness of Christ was confirmed in you or settled in you, made steadfast in you or amongst you. It could have reference as well to the apostles who came and preached and and did signs and miracles to confirm it. But the thing that he's pointing out is that it became there. It was confirmed. Not before you, but where? Amongst you. In you. It was settled in you. It was made solid in you. 
And how is it that the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes confirmed in me? It is by what? By faith. By believing. By repenting and believing the gospel. So the testimony here refers to the gospel. When the gospel of Christ was settled in you, then that grace was made yours. So you have in verse 4 the divine side and then in verse 6 we have the human response. You hear about saving grace and all that it is and you believe it and it is settled in your heart. And then the benefit becomes yours. Saving grace. All sins totally forgiven Forever. No guilt ever yours again. What a glorious thought. And that grace includes the pouring out of riches and more riches and more riches on your life for now and throughout eternity. That's the blessing of grace. And that grace equips you to do good deeds to men and to fulfill the purpose that God has for the church because He has equipped the church with every spiritual gift that is needed to bring about His purposes. So it's not a matter of not possessing the gifts. It's a matter of whether or not they're being implemented. There is nothing There is absolutely nothing absent from the local church that God intends to give to fulfill His purposes. And that's why the local church should operate based on the gifts that God gives. And the ministries are developed based on the giftedness. And if we have a ministry that we want to pursue, but we don't seem to have the gifts for, we don't start the ministry with the hopes that the gifts will be added. We pray that God will bring the right people who have the gifts to do that ministry. Otherwise, you start things with people who don't have the gifts to accomplish them. And it ends up in a struggle and and strife and discord and eventually paralysis. So God gives every gift that is necessary for the fulfillment of His purposes within each local church. (coughs) Excuse me. Look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As we await, as we pray for, as we long for the return of Christ, there is no reason under the sun that we cannot be striving to advance the kingdom and proclaiming the gospel through words and actions because God gives us the gifts to accomplish His purposes for His glory. It's a matter of us being aware of what those gifts are. And seeking to know how they should be implemented. And so it's vital that we understand and remember that there is nothing absent from the local church that God intends to give to fulfill His purposes. 
My second point. The church is completely sustained by God's faithfulness. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We should never think that as God's once enemies who He rescued from His wrath and the penalty of death, whom He gave His Son for, whom He calls righteous and whom He continuously protects and whom He has given the Spirit of God to and whom He has adopted as His own possession, that He would do all of this for us and then allow us to fall by the wayside and perish. Some of God's people may have been looking around and saying, I don't think we're ever going to pull this off. I don't think we're ever going to get this thing going. I mean, look at us. We're neither, we're not powerful. We're not smart. We're nothing. What a crummy bunch. What a, what a hand to be dealt. Look at this group. So what confidence could Paul instill into these people? You're waiting for Jesus Christ to be revealed. He's coming back and you're getting ready. Remember this. He's going to keep you strong to the end. And as He keeps you strong, you will be blameless on that day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you slipped into thinking, believer, that although you were saved by grace through faith, that you actually stay saved by endeavors and activities? Do you ever find yourself thinking that for some reason you're going to die soon and that you better repent of all those sins you committed years ago before it's too late? Do you ever find yourself laying in bed thinking, I I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it when I get up there because I, don't, I didn't do this or, or that. Do you have this idea that while, while everyone else is in heaven, they're going to be enjoying the banquet, they're going to be enjoying the feast, and are going to be having the worship service that we've all always longed for, and that you're going to be in the hallway sweeping the floors because you were saved, but... You almost didn't squeeze by. Be assured, Christian. The Apostle Paul reminds us that when we stand in Christ, we will stand blameless for the very same reason we are accepted today. Because on Calvary, our sins were dealt with. And he called us not guilty. Jesus Christ renders his righteousness ours by placing it in our account and knowing nothing of our sin, nothing of our guilt, nothing of our inadequacy. And he's encouraging the Corinthians and saying, there's no way you're going to pull this off. There's no way you're going to struggle to this eventuality. 
You will not be able to be moved to perfection. You will not be able to become all that the church is called to be on this earth because we are still striving against the flesh and still seeking to fully understand the grace of God. But I want to remind you, you'll be sustained to the end. You'll be blameless in the end. Not because you persevered, but because of the faithfulness of God who caused you to persevere. And then it will be revealed to you what the perfect, spotless bride of Christ looks like in perfection. As you stand before the bridegroom and he ushers you into the feast with great joy and anticipation. Real fast, as I conclude, I want to give three points of application for this. And I don't typically do this because I want the word itself to bear itself out in our hearts and lives. And let application come from convictions and right understandings of the word. But I think it's important that we chat about a few of these things. So three items real quick. If we are going to understand what Paul is saying of the church, we must be completely committed to the church where God has placed us. Membership and commitment in the local church is very important. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to learn about what Paul is saying regarding the church functioning as the body as arms and legs and hands and feet and shoulders. Each part of the body doing its function so that the body is complete and lacking in nothing. And if you are a believer of, in Christ, you are a part of the body. And you need the rest of the body so that you can function properly. Verse 9 says that we were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are called into participation with Jesus Christ. And as an extension, into participation with the church because we are the church. Christians cannot go it alone. We cannot navigate in this life apart from the unity and fellowship of the church. God has designed us for community and God has called us together as a family, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. I need you. And I'm sorry to say, but you need me. And we're in this thing together. And God requires it. God designed it that way. And so it is vitally important that we understand that our commitment to the local church is very, very important. Secondly, Paul encourages us to be confident that God's desire is to make his church like Jesus, a place where Jesus dwells. The way that God makes his church a Jesus place is by making you and me a Jesus people. And when we all walk as Jesus people, we have a multiplied experience of His grace and His goodness in our lives. 
We are Jesus' people when we are striving to live according to all that God has commanded. When we are living in accordance with the Scriptures. When we are loving our neighbors and and when we are being instruments of redemption by loving others and showing grace and showing mercy to those around us by proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, in grace and truth. We are a Jesus people when we unashamedly stand for what is true and when we remain unstained from the world and when we walk in peace and unity with one another working through and reconciling our differences and finding the greatest good amongst God's people is that we are striving to fulfill His purposes and to proclaim His glory with one heart and with one mind. And so God makes His church like Jesus by making us a Jesus people. Third and lastly, Paul implies a certainty that God's people will be set apart and will be holy. While God is sustaining us to the end, He is making us more and more holy and is setting us apart from the world. As those who are called into fellowship with Jesus, God calls us to obedience and faithfulness. And the beauty is that Not only does He command perseverance and holiness, He provides the means by which these things are to be accomplished. God is great and merciful and kind and loving. What a great God He is. Brothers and sisters, as we work through this book of 1 Corinthians, I want us all to remember that God has purposes for His local church. He has purposes for this local church and for others. And our confidence is to be in Him and Him alone. Let us not be lulled into humdrum going through the motions pseudo-Christianity. And let us not stir ourselves up into this overbearing frenzy of activity, but let's trust God. And let's trust His faithfulness to sustain us unto the end. And let's trust the power of the gospel to transform lives and open the eyes of the blind that they may see His glory forevermore. Let us be Jesus' people who walk by faith to make known the glory and wisdom of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Father, we pray with grateful, grateful hearts that by Your faithfulness that You sustain us. And that at the day of Your return, Christ Jesus, that we will stand before You blameless. What a great and glorious reality. Father, we are so thankful for Your grace We're thankful that while we receive something we do not deserve, we receive it in light of the fact that we were your enemies and yet you still saw fit to grant it to us. Father, what a great and glorious truth. 
Help us, Lord, to remember that. Help us, Lord, to trust that. Help us to cling to your grace. Because, Father, without your grace, we are hopeless. Lord, I pray that you make this a Jesus place and that you make us a Jesus people. That we not lull ourselves into flatline boredom. That we not work ourselves to the bone seeking to please you outside of the very fact that we've been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But that we be faithful to the scriptures. That we give of ourselves and we be willing to give of our lives for the sake of the gospel. That we love you with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls and all of our strength. And that that be known of us. Help us all, Lord, to be a people who loves Jesus and proclaims Jesus and who makes Jesus to look as glorious as he truly is. Lord, we love you and we are so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful for your sustaining faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us great conviction to walk more faithfully as Jesus' people to make your glory known to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.